Heavenly Father, the greatest need in this hour and, and for our lives is for you to show us yourself in Scripture. Um, this book is your revealed word. It's, it's what you want us to know about you and about your purposes in this world, and we need to see it, and our hearts need to be in a position, Father, of embracing it, and the only one who can do that, the only one who can change the soil of our hearts, Father, is you. And so I pray right now that by your grace, by your great power, by your beauty, your intrinsic, objective beauty, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see, embrace, and love, and cherish your word, and to learn something about you, Father, that isn't just a piece of knowledge we can tuck away and all of the other pieces of knowledge we possess, Father, but would be transformative at a very deep level. I pray this with confidence, knowing that you are able to provide every single need. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, grab them, please, and uh, turn to Colossians 1, which is where we've been for since the beginning. <laughs> um, and today we're actually starting a new series called Prayer Unceasing. And uh, we've passed now in the book of Colossians beyond, um, well beyond the introduction, and we're about to enter into very deep uh, waters. And this is a really awesome thing because one of the characteristics of Paul, when he keys up a letter, most of the churches that he, he, he writes to, he actually provides for them at the beginning a prayer. And he not only mentions that he's praying for them, but he actually outlines what he is praying for them, which is really profound. He spends a lot of time talking about what he brings to God on their behalf. And I think it's fascinating and helpful for us to look at these things because not only does it give us a, a, a shot, a, a, a snapshot of what this church, the Colossian church, was going through um, at this point in um, their, their life, but it also gives us an understanding of how we as a church should be praying for ourselves, how we should be praying for ourselves individually, and how we should pray for the body collectively. And uh, so I'm excited about that. Um, and uh, this is how I want to spend our time together today. I want to go through this prayer, and I want to, for today, really cast a very wide and sort of uh, high net and try to distill three attributes of what Paul is, how he understands prayer and what his, his passion is when it comes to prayer. Um, and then in the next few weeks, we'll look at specific aspects of the prayer. Um, so we're going to be really at 40,000 feet today, and we're going to drop down a few times, but I, I want to just really give a broad understanding and sort of build a foundation for us so that we understand Paul's Paul's passion for these people as he goes to God. Sound good? All right. Colossians 1 verse 9 says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, <clears throat> critical, obviously, to understanding this passage right is having an understanding of what prayer 
is at a very fundamental level. And I think we make a lot of assumptions about what prayer is, and uh, that's probably because it's pervasive in our culture. No matter what religious belief you affirm, no matter what, uh, even atheists, uh, there's a study that showed that even like uh, 35% of all atheists actually say prayer. And uh, so prayer in general is pervasive across culture. And I think as Christians, we're, we're called to understand, like Paul, how to pray correctly. The God of the universe has revealed himself in Scripture, like I was saying earlier. And this is where you and I get our understanding of what it means to pray. Um, and uh, I think the Bible specifically deals with, obviously, all theological issues, but you don't get in terms of practical theology, you don't get much more practical than the, an understanding of how you can communicate to God, how you speak to God. And most people would define prayer as simply talking to God. Most people would say that that's what prayer is. And uh, we should ask the question, is, as Christian believers, when we go to God and talk to Him, is it only talking to Him? Or is something else going on there? Is, is it just us communicating to God about our hopes, our fears, our passions, our dreams, or our needs? Is, that, is there something more going on there? And so I want to look at Psalm 27, verses 7 through 9. And I want to just look at this text here. This is from David. This is a prayer that David had to Yahweh, the Hebrew God, our God. And I want to just listen to what he says and sort of posture our hearts around what he's how he's tackling a prayer. He says this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, and be gracious to me, and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David prays, you have said to me, seek my face and my heart, my inmost being says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. And this is obviously a prayer in the book of Psalms. Psalms is a very interesting book because most of the Bible, <laughs> we find out information about God. We find out um, about uh, what we need to know about who he is. And Psalms tells us what we need to say to him, how we should communicate to him. Um, and so this is a really apt place to start. One of the reasons I'm bringing up David's prayer here is that it shows at the very core level what prayer is for a Christian believer, what prayer is for a believer in the God that we love and serve. Prayer is, at its deepest point, communion with the living God. It isn't simply a conversation because underneath prayer, what's happening there are massive realities, massive things about us and about who God is. So we need to, especially at the beginning, just not take it for granted that when you need something as a believer, when you're seeking for help because of something impossible, we go to the God who formed galaxies by the word of his power. We go to a God who sustains the entire universe, every single molecule, because he decides to every millisecond. That's the one we're talking to. 
And so we need to really let that hit us with the full weight of what it is. Prayer is, at its base level, an admission of our insufficiency to meet our own needs. Our inability to meet the needs that we have in front of us. And prayer is an acknowledgement of the replete sufficiency for God to meet those needs. Whether we're asking something from Him or whether we're thanking Him for something He's provided, we make that admission, we can't do this, we're not sufficient for these things, and we either say, I can't solve this problem, God help me, or we say, God, I couldn't solve this problem, and you came through for me, you helped me, you provided it, thank you. Both of these activities, whether we're pleading with Him for something, <laughs> excuse me, or whether we're thanking Him for something that He's provided, both of these come from, they well up from a deep and profound recognition of our own inability to provide the things that we need. And an equally deep expectation and hope and confidence that God will do something on our behalf, that He'll meet our needs. So prayer at its very base level speaks volumes about us and it speaks volumes about God. And this is how Paul pray, prays. This is how he comes to God whenever he prays for a church or for his own ministry or for someone else. Um, so for our time together, like I said, I want to highlight three aspects, three observations of Paul's understanding of prayer. And then I want to offer a word of encouragement. And we'll touch on the content of the prayer a little this week. But most of this will be trying to really get our mind in our heart in a posture of um, understanding what Paul felt when he got on his knees and said, today I'm going to bring the Colossian church to my God, and I'm going to ask him for his power and his grace to move in, in profound ways. I want to feel what he felt. I want to think about what he thought when he was saying these things. So the first thing, the first observation I want to make about this prayer that we just read in Colossians is that Paul views prayer as absolutely necessary. He sees it as, as essential. He does not see it as additive. It is not a novelty to Paul. He is uh, not thinking that it's just a nice to have on the side of his Christian belief. <laughs> he sees it as absolutely essential and necessary to living life as a Christian. Paul says in this text, I am praying so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So Paul is after for the Colossian church that they would be worthy of the Lord, that they would please God. He wants them to look like people who have actually encountered God. He wants them to reflect a kind of person who's been impacted by the grace. In uh, Ephesians he says the same thing. He says, I, I, I'm praying that you would be worthy of the calling that you've been called to. Or the Philippians, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he wants them to treasure Jesus. And he wants that to become very clear to anybody they interact with. That's what worthy of the Lord means. It doesn't mean that you've met a standard. It means that you delight in God. And when you walk around, when you're in the world, people see you and they say, Jesus is that person's highest treasure. The point of our lives, 
and this is the constant refrain of the entire Bible, is that we were made for the glory of God. We were made for the glory of Jesus Christ. We were designed, even with the image of God on us, to embrace and display His beauty in the world. Colossians 1.16, which we'll get to in a few weeks, says this. It says, everything that exists, exists for Jesus, for Christ. All of it. So that what that means is this. The point of me, the point of you guys, the point of Kingsgate outside this uh, church or outside this school, and the point of 8 billion human beings on this planet is very simple. The point of all of those things is Jesus. It is that we would glorify and exalt Christ because he's infinitely worthy of that. This is not something <laughs> that is done through natural means. This is not something that comes naturally to people. This is not intuitive to our frame and to our own ability, even though that's why we were made. Um, it is impossible, physically impossible, for someone to magnify and glorify Jesus Christ, to display his beauty naturally. And so that means that when it actually happens, you need to know that that's a supernatural event. That's not someone being convinced by an argument. That is someone having an encounter with God. Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't do it. It's not an option for them if they're in the flesh. It is morally impossible for them to please God. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord, which is at the base level of what it means to glorify Christ, is to recognize his lordship. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. That's profound. To do what we were meant to do, what everything in the universe was designed to do, to glorify Christ, is a supernatural event. It requires the impossible to happen. So let the weight of that hit you because Paul is asking right now for God to do the, the impossible. He is asking not the Colossian church to do this. He's not saying, hey, you guys need to sign up and do this. He's going to God because he recognizes that the only way that this is going to happen is if God causes it and allows it to happen. We can't walk in a manner worthy of the Lord without divine supernatural intervention. We need God every single, of our sec every single second of our lives to do what he's called us to do. And the way appointed by God to extend to us this grace is through us asking him in prayer, which is exactly what Paul's doing here. We ask and we plead, God, help us to display you as though we've encountered you, as though we've seen the gospel for what it is. And God's instrument for doing this is the act of prayer. And if you think I might be exaggerating a little bit about Paul's perspective on prayer, I want you to look at a word he uses to depict prayer throughout the, the, the um, book of Colossians. So Colossians 2, 1, he says, For I want you, Colossian church, to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. <laughs> and in Colossians 4.12, describing Epaphras, who's the person who evangelized to the city of Colossae and started the church, 
He describes Epaphras' ministry, since he's not with the Colossians right now, he's not preaching to them, he's not teaching them. He says this in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So this word, struggling, Epaphras is struggling on your behalf in prayers. This word in Greek is agona, and Paul uses it throughout his letters, and he uses it very often to describe his ministry and specifically prayer, agona. And if you're thinking about trying to unpack where that word, like what words we have, you probably already arrived at it. One of the words that we've got in English from agona is agonize, to agonize over something. Paul and Epaphras are not presently with the Colossian church, and Paul has never even seen them, or the Laodiceans down the street. He's never seen these people. <laughs> he knows they exist. He knows that his ministry is part of the reason they exist. Um, and his ministry right now for them, the only thing that he can do of lasting value right now, outside of write these letters in which he's put a prayer, is get on his knees before God and struggle in prayer for the Colossian church. So these prayers that he's praying are not without great fervency and intensity. Paul is saying, when I think about you, Colossians, as I go to God, I struggle, I toil earnestly in my prayers for you. Now, why is Epaphras, why is Paul struggling? And I, I believe it's this reason. They feel the weight of what they're asking. They feel the weight of what they're asking God for and what the Colossian church desperately needs. They're asking for them to glorify Christ and magnify Jesus in the way that they live. There isn't a need more significant or critical for a human being than to fulfill the role that they were made for, period. And that's heavy because every single human being was made for this. And if it happens... Paul's prayer clearly shows this. It happens because God intervened. God acted. God answered the prayer. How do we magnify Christ? We plead with him to change our hearts and our affections and our desires and everything that needs to get changed about us in order to do what we were made to do. The Christian life could be summarized as this. It is a life captivated and transformed by the beauty of Jesus. And that is... Let me say that again. It is a life that is captivated and transformed by the beauty of Jesus, especially the beauty displayed when he died to redeem us from our sins. And it is impossible for us to be captivated by this, and it is impossible for us to be transformed by this unless God steps in. And prayer is the instrument by which God does that, which leads to our second observation. Number two is this. Paul views his prayer as unceasing. Unceasing. This is the title of the series. So it's pretty important, really, this term unceasing to everything we're going to be talking about in the next two weeks or three weeks. Um, Paul says, I have, we have not ceased to pray for you. <laughs> and Paul actually commands the Colossian church to do something very similar. In um, Colossians 4.2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray 
without ceasing. He actually says that in other letters. Um, now, obviously, he doesn't mean that the only thing that we ever do is pray. That's obviously not what he means because he's actually writing the letter while he says this. However, um, it does say um, that he probably more than likely means since I first discovered that you guys were believers, since I first heard that you guys had become Christians, every time I go to God, I mention you before him and I ask for him to do these things for you. And he won't stop praying for them. He's committed to them, which is an amazing thing if you think about it. He's basically saying, listen, I'm not going to stop, I'm not going to stop praying for you until I see God actually do this. I'm not going to stop. I am with you to the end on this. I will not stop praying for you. I will fight for you in this. But we need to be clear because there is a way in which the Christian isn't just called to pray confidently and steadfastly for specific things. There is a way in which the Christian is called to have a constant communion with God. To always be thinking about, am I trusting you? Can I trust you? Help me trust you. To always be thinking about having, in, in many ways, the Christian life is like a dialogue more than a monologue. Other lives might be like a monologue. I want to tell you about who I am. I'm going to display who I am. The Christian life is a dialogue. It is a conversation constantly with the one who you were made for and made by. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is probably one of my favorite verses in that book and one of the verses that's had the most profound effect on my life, I would say, from the Old Testament at least. Most of you guys know it already. Let me read it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make, your, he make straight your paths. This is, this is a prayer. It's God telling us how to pray, how to posture ourselves in prayer. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart can only happen and only would happen if you are relying on God for something or if you need something from him. That's the only time that trust will actually happen. Um, refusing to lean on your own understanding is an acknowledgement that if somebody doesn't intervene from outside of me, something's going to go wrong. There's going to be a problem. There's going to be trouble. And God is saying in this verse, stop trusting in your own understanding. Trust in me. Trust in me. And then he says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, how do we acknowledge God? We obviously give glory to God um, vocally, but like, how do we acknowledge him? And the main way we as Christians acknowledge God is in our hearts, we know that he's the one who's going to provide and we acknowledge him in prayer. We put his purposes and his priorities first, and we ask him to govern our lives on that grid. And we take our hands off the wheel, effectively, in our posture of prayer, and we say, this life is yours. And this is a self-criticism, really, I'm going to mention here now. Um, a lot of our prayers, I think, if I'm being honest, um, they kind of make God sound like our buddy and our friend, and maybe just a pair of helpful hands to sort of help us out of a situation that is unmanageable or untenable. But when we look at the Bible, that's not how the prayers in the Bible see him. It doesn't mean that he's not going to help us and he's not our friend. He absolutely is. But the Bible 
expresses prayer in a different way. Those prayers in the Bible recognize God first for being God, for being who he is. Take the Lord's Prayer, for example. This is how Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. We're going to look at the first part of it. It says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. <clears throat> your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is halfway done, and we haven't even gotten to what the needs are. And uh, we need to ask why. Why is that the case? Why is, why is Jesus teaching us how to pray in this way? Maybe it's because the needs that we have on the tip of our tongue, though they may be critical to our lives, though they may be very significant, and though God is waiting and desiring to answer them, maybe they are less important and less significant than us understanding who God is and us embracing who God is in that moment. Maybe prayer has more to do with us understanding and embracing who God is instead of the individual needs we have. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying that we have needs and that we should bring them to God. The Bible tells us this explicitly. Um, and I don't want to discourage you at all from doing that. We are called as sons and daughters of our king, to come to him when we have needs. But what I'm saying is this, maybe the most important reality in our lives, because it's what we know and believe about God, prayer is God's appointed means by which we let go of our desires and our inclination to control things and to govern our own life. And we humbly, like a child, come to our God and ask him to move mountains. Maybe that's the posture of prayer that we're supposed to have. And, and if I'm really honest with you, the biggest mountain in everyone's life is how we can believe and embrace who God really is for us, that he's really able to answer our prayers. And so these prayers begin with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Everything that goes on here needs to go on in a posture and in a mindset of, the greatness of God needs to be displayed here. If it's obscured at all in my actions, in my life, in my passions, then I'm doing everyone around me a disservice. <laughs> Therefore, for Paul, prayer isn't just simply a conversation when he's got time or a sidebar or something he can work in the schedules in the morning. Prayer is a constant communion a dialogue with God that not only serves to bring needs to him, but as a reminder to himself and to everyone around him that he needs God to survive. He needs God to do what God's called him to do. He's walking with God every step of the way, and Paul's voice is always in God's ear. He's like, I'm not, I'm on the phone with you right now. I'm not letting go. I'm not going to hang up. Don't hang up on me. Please hear me. That's his posture in prayer. He doesn't see prayer as a magic genie in the bottle. He sees prayer as a means by which we are embraced by an all-powerful God. And so we need to walk with God in prayer. We need to have constant prayer, constantly asking, constantly putting our voice in his ears. The third observation from Paul's prayer is this. Paul views prayer as a public ministry. He views prayer as public. 
<laughs> do you see this? He, so he's, first off, he's broadcasting, not only to the Colossian church saying, hey, listen, I'm praying for you. He's actually telling them what he's praying. And he does this in almost every single letter he writes. He says, this is how I'm praying for you. I want you to know it. Now, he does it for a reason, but I think a lot of us, even before we get to what the reason is, a lot of us are generally uncomfortable with this. Um, and, and probably for a good reason. We're trying to obey what Jesus said in Matthew 6. I don't know if you remember it. Matthew 6 says this. This is Jesus cautioning his disciples. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, which is good because nobody wants to be like a hypocrite. How do we not be like hypocrites, Jesus? For they, the hypocrites, love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, this is how I want you to pray. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, superficially, it seems like Jesus is saying public prayer is not a good idea. That's what it looks like here. But we know that that's not the case. First, we know it's not the case because Jesus often prayed in public. So he must be saying something out else. He must, be, he must be trying to communicate something about public prayer that we need to know and observe and recognize. In Matthew 6, Jesus is taking issue with hypocrisy, obviously. And what he's saying is that these people aren't praying because they want to meet God. They're not praying because they want to encounter God. They are praying because they want to be seen by others. They want the approval of man. And he's like, guess what? They got that reward. That's all that they're getting. They've received their reward. They will get the approval of man. They want people to think that they're spiritual. They've got that. <laughs> this isn't what Paul's doing at all. He's not worried about getting props for having a strong prayer life. He's not worried or concerned about that in the least. He's doing everything he can to let the Colossian church know that he loves them, that he's there for them. He wants them to know how he's praying for them. And one of the major reasons for this is that when the prayer is answered, he wants them to know that was God. That was God. God did that. Remember Colossians 4.2, which I read just a few seconds ago? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving being watchful in it, in your steadfast prayer with thanksgiving. What does that mean? What is he asking for? Why would you ask us to be watchful for thanksgiving? Well, the obvious reason would probably be that he wants us to have a posture of expectation. That when we pray, we should be ready to thank God for the answered prayer. That our response and our posture to God in praying steadfastly is that we say, God, when you answer this prayer, I want to thank you. I want, I want, I want you to do this for your glory. I want you to do this for your, your beauty and your worth to be displayed. And this is important because ultimately it points to something deeper here. I want you to think about this for a second. A lot of unbelievers and a lot of Christians even get caught up on this idea of prayer because <clears throat> they recognize that the Bible presents a very sovereign and in-control God, doing all sorts of things that a sovereign, in-control God would do. And so 
the intellectual question would be, if God is sovereign and he's all-powerful, how is it, why is it, that we need to pray at all? Why should we pray? And there are dozens of really good answers for that. I want to focus on one, and it, it's expressed in 2 Corinthians uh, one eleven. So Paul says to the Corinthian church in this passage, you also must help us by prayer. He's asking for prayer. He's inviting prayer for his ministry, for his missionary journey, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now think about what he's saying here. He's saying, Corinthian church, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me. Why do you want us to pray for you, Paul? God, God knows who you are. He, he's going to cover you. He's got your back. <laughs> he called you to this. He's going to be there for you. Paul doesn't mention that at all. I think Paul believes that that's going to happen. However, he wants God to be thanked for it when it does. He wants God to be exalted for it when it happens. Um, John 14, 13 through 14, Jesus says this, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why will you do this, Jesus? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it for the glory of his Father. That's why he'll do it. So when we ask God for anything, or for the purposes of his name to be lifted high. That's what it means to ask in the name of Jesus. When we ask for that, the Father is glorified. The Father is exalted. The Father is made much of. And if God answered a need that we have without any prayer, and he's done that plenty of times in my life, where I've just not prayed about something, and he's answered it. When God answers a need for any prayer at all, um, without us noticing it, he's still merciful. He's still loving. He's still gracious. We just don't have the reason to express it because we're not recognizing that it comes at the end of a prayer. We're not pleading for him and asking for the answer and then seeing the answer give. So thanksgiving is harder for us to connect. And so the bottom line is um, God, prayer exists in many respects for us to recognize when God does good to us. Now, a lot of you might be thinking, well, this is a little bit weird and this is a hard thing for me to struggle with that God would create something or design something like prayer to glorify himself and ask, you know, is God just stroking his, his ego here? What's the deal with this? Why, why does God need to be thanked for anything? I mean, he's God. Getting glory for yourself is a little self-serving, right? Well, here's the deal. God is objectively worthy of all those things. And that it isn't expressed by us, isn't a reflection of his absolute objective worth, but rather our inadequacy to recognize him for what he really is. And so <clears throat> even us being made in the image of God is an experience by which we are embracing the joy of who he is and displaying it to the world. And so prayer, answered prayers specifically, are an act of mercy that we can thank him for. So as we close, I want to say just a few things, and I want to uh, just just to encourage you and read a passage. Um, I think I think it's helpful for us. Let me say it this way: It would bring me great joy, great joy, if as a church we committed ourselves individually and collectively as a body to faithful, 
and continual prayer. Not only just for ourselves, like for us to be edified and to enjoy fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ, but for Kingsgate and for the greater Seattle area and for the people who need to know Jesus and the people who are physically suffering, whose needs we can meet. Um, we need to, as Risen Hope, get on our needs regularly and ask God to move for us. Um, and I've told this to other people. I really believe this. Hopefully it doesn't scare you guys, but Risen Hope lives or dies based on whether or not God answers our prayers. We need to pray. Our body of believers will exist if God sees fit, and that will happen if we ask him for it. And so I'm, I'm pleading with you guys to regularly get in the habit of praying. Nothing of lasting value, nothing of lasting value will be done by, by this body of believers if we don't actually get on our knees and ask God to use us powerfully. Um, John 15, 5 says this. This is Jesus saying uh, to his disciples, the stipulations of what it means to be a disciple. Without me, he says, you can do nothing. That's Jesus. Without me, nothing of lasting value is humanly possible. It requires me, God, to intervene and to make it happen. And so I want to read one last passage as an encouragement to you for why we pray and why we can have great, great confidence that when we pray, our God will hear us and he will move powerfully for his glory and for our joy. Prayer is not, like I said earlier, a game. It's not, a, it's not an exercise, a road exercise. It's not a novelty. It's not something we do for fun. It's something uh, that we do regularly, not just when we have time, and it is at its very deepest fabric, communicating, communion, communing with the living God. Um, we cannot survive or complete our purposes without that. So Romans 8, 31 is what I want to read to you through 39. says this, What then shall we say to these things? This is Paul talking to the Roman church. What then shall we say to these things? The first eight chapters of the book of Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn us? It is Christ Jesus who died. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul saying there? First, he is saying we are profoundly loved by God. We are loved by God in that God can and will meet every single need we have, period. Paul uses an a fortiori argument here. A fortiori argument is an argument from greater to lesser. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you saw it here. He says, God will give us all things. You're a believer, you're a Christian, you're in Christ. God will give you all things, every single thing we need. And he's saying we'll provide, he will provide every single thing guaranteed. Now the question is, why is he? Why is he able to do this? Why? Paul says, because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's an a fortiori argument. We read this quickly, but we really need to slow down and let it sit on us. Jesus Christ is the greatest reality in the universe. There is absolutely nothing like him. Nothing like him, period. He is the highest value in, in existence and everything else that exists, the entire cosmos, including us, is actually, in terms of value, infinitely less valuable. That's how high and valued he is. Paul is saying that if God gave up Jesus for us, everything else is a piece of cake. The entire universe, a piece of cake. There's nothing he can't do. He gave up the greatest thing. He sent his son to the, to the cross. Everything else, everything else is a piece of cake. He will provide what you need. I didn't say he will provide what you pray for. I didn't say he will provide everything you think you might need. I said that he will provide everything you need. So God knows what we need better than I do and better than you do. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God, right? He knows everything we need. And <laughs> I could say this, if you knew everything that God knew, your prayers would be answered exactly the same way that they are. God never fails to answer a prayer. He always answers prayers. He just doesn't answer them the way that we necessarily want them to. And nothing you need as a believer, as a Christian, nothing that you need to fulfill your ultimate purpose will ever, ever be withheld from you. You will have it. Um, my grandfather, when I was uh, 16, 17 years old, um, he had for a, a period of time, um, well, actually for all of his life practically, been an alcoholic. And um, he had uh, been addicted to smoking and just he'd, he'd been an alcoholic. He'd, he'd damaged his body quite severely. Um, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, he became a believer, came to church with us, um, put his faith in Christ Jesus, and he immediately, cold turkey, <laughs> quit drinking, and he quit smoking. That day, never touched a single drop of it again. Three or four years later, I'm working alongside him in my dad's company. We're in construction, and I'm spending time with him. I'm enjoying him um, as my grandfather for the first time, really. 
and um, we find out that he's diagnosed with cancer and that it's pretty severe. And um, for six months, I am on my knees regularly pleading with God and saying, God, he's a believer. Most of us in our family haven't even known him for who he is because he was always drunk. Keep him around. Save him, rescue him. He died of cancer after the six months of struggling with it and his diagnosis. And um, I got bitter with God for almost 10 years. I ran in the opposite direction, hated him, didn't want anything to do with him. He didn't answer my prayer. And I didn't really, I didn't really want to be part of this Christian thing if he was going to abandon me at the first time that I needed him. It wasn't until years later that I, I really feel like he put on my heart the reason why it happened that way. But here's, here's what I'm saying. God came and rescued me years after I fell away and ran from him. And I know his love in ways that I never would have if he would have answered that prayer. I, I, I know who he is because he came at my darkest and at my lowest. And he answered the prayer in another way. I didn't need my grandfather to be alive. I needed to know that God loved me. And I had no clue how much he loved me until he came for me and rescued me. I was driving home. I was actually on this road um, coming to my house um, about um, two years ago. <laughs> and uh, as I was um, praying in the car, not about my grandfather, an image of his face hit my mind. And suddenly, I felt like God was saying, doesn't a father have a right to have his son home? And I realized that God had waited 40 years, 50 years for my grandfather to see how much he loved him. And as soon as he did, God was ready to bring him home. God wanted to be with him. I wouldn't have known that. I had my son in between those years with, with Rachel, and I would not have known what it means to actually want your son home. I, had no, I wouldn't have no framework for it. God in his providence let me go through all of that heartache and, and tragedy, and on the other end, I know now when he says that to me, I know this is what it means. This is what it means. This is why he wanted my grandfather home with him is because he loved him and he had waited so long to see him and embrace him as a son. The other thing I want to look at it with Romans 8 is this. This is probably one of the most profound realities that as a Christian you can understand and embrace. Jesus Christ right now at this very moment is interceding for you. If you are a believer... He is praying for you. He bought you through the cross. He paid for you fully. You are his. And I'm telling you today, he will never, ever, ever let you go. That's what this passage is about. Nothing, nothing, nothing in the entire universe can separate us 
from the love of Jesus Christ. And right now he is pleading with his father for you. <clears throat> he is interceding for us. I don't want you to think about the other people in this room. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about who you are, not anybody else in this room, not Kingsgate outside, 13,000 or so people there, not 8.5 billion human beings that are on this rock um, called earth. None of them. I want you to think about yourself. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, has, his, has your name, your name on his lips before the Father. And he is praying for you. He's praying for you individually. You're not alone in this fight. The master and the Lord of the universe is before his father and he, he wants to do you great good. I think a lot of us have a hard time understanding that God is more ready to answer our prayers than we are to say them. He's more willing to intervene in our lives than we are to express the need for intervention. If you're a believer today, we're going to do the communion table here. I want you to know that if you're a believer, the communion table is open to you. And I want you to, when you take communion, I want you to consider that Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us, that that same person who did that, who redeemed us from all of the ways in which we don't honor him, is right now, before his father, fighting for our good. That's an absurd reality. It should not be, but it is. Right now, massive currents of love and grace are flowing to you, not only because of what he accomplished 2,000 years ago on that tree, but because right now he is before his father and he is fighting for you. You will make it. He will be with you to the end. Let the weight of that saturate your hearts as we praise him with worship. Let's pray. I'll be in the back for prayer if you guys need um, to pray. Um, let's pray right now. Father God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you have given us today to meet with you, to, to see you as you are. I pray that what we've read today in, in scripture and what we've learned and explored, Father, that your grace would use that not just today, but tomorrow and in, in, in the weeks and the months to come, Father, that our prayer lives would be shaped by the awesome reality that Christ Jesus is before his Father saying, I'm here. I'm here for these people. These people are mine. Do good to them, Father. I pray that, that we would be <laughs> cognizant, Father, of the fact that when we come to you, Lord, it's not simply us having a conversation with our buddy, but that it is at a very deep and profound level, us communing with the one who made the universe and who holds it together and the one who is leaning into our lives saying, I will be there for you. Ask me what you need and I will provide it. I pray that we would feel that, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Be glorified today. Amen.